The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Welcome to the American Health Law Association's Fraud and Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel. Today is Friday, December 18th, 2020. Joining us today is Dan Murphy, a partner in Bradley Aaron's Birmingham office. Dan recently wrote and published an AHLA briefing entitled Compliance Tips for Integrated Healthcare Organizations, Coordinated Care, and the Shift to Value-Based Reimbursement, the topic of today's discussion. Dan, welcome. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. And, you know, Dan, I think we'll just jump right into it. And before we start with uh, some of the compliance tips, I think it might be helpful to set the stage for our listeners. Can you define for us, rather, what it is we're talking about when we say integrated healthcare organization? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I use the term integrated healthcare organization in this briefing. um, And struggle with that term because it's really not a term of art. Um, You know, you won't find that anywhere in the kickback statute or the Stark law um, as such, or really anywhere. Um, And, you know, it could be a lot of things, but what I, what I've meant here was really any uh, collection of entities or providers who are um, coordinating care, delivering care in a coordinated manner. Um, I would say it's not unlike the term of art that um, CMS and the OIG just adopted in the final um, regulatory sprint rules for the value-based enterprise, um, but I didn't want to use that term because I, I think it could be broader than something that just meets that definition. Um, just to give a couple of examples, I think you know what I mean here by integrated health um, organization could be um, could be an ACO, could be a clinically integrated network, could just be a, um, a, a hospital system that has different types of providers, or it could even just be a, a large company that has different um, providers or even um, you know manufacturers in their in their system that coordinate care. Great. No, I think that's very helpful, Dan, and I appreciate the distinction between uh, your term. Uh, which I, I understand to be, you know, much more of an umbrella type uh, uh, term versus value-based enterprise, which is quickly becoming a term of art in our in our world, uh, and with a very specific meaning. Uh, you know, uh, given all of the updates and enhancements we've seen over the past few weeks with the new AKS uh, rules, with the new Stark rules coming out. I found it interesting in your briefing, Dan, you talk about the conflict between the fraud and abuse risks that give rise under a a fee-for-service payment model versus those that arise out of the context of a value-based or care coordination arrangement. Could you set this dilemma up for us? What exactly is the conflict between those risks and how is it particularly evident at integrated healthcare organizations? One one of the things that I found working with um, larger clients particularly is that, that, you know, what they want to do is they want to take care of their patients, they want to do well um, business-wise as well, of course, um, but they can find it pretty confusing that in some settings, uh, payer settings like fee-for-service, um, the big fraud and abuse concern or one of the big ones can be overutilization or lack of medical necessity for services. Um, but 
for, you know, within the same setting of care, um, the same client uh, or company also has patients who are, um, who, are pay, who are getting paid for through value-based care models or, or risk models. And there, one of the big concerns is um, stinting on care or not providing medically necessary services. Um, so one of, the, one of the real things that I wanted to try to think through in this briefing was how, to, how do you guide your clients when maybe they're not quite as attuned to, um, to, the very, to the nuances that are in the fraud and abuse laws and what they're trying to do is just run their business and take care of patients. So I would say the big the big tension is this overutilization in the fraud in the um, fee for service world versus stinting on care in the in the value based world, um, and then another big tension I think is on the the patient inducement front. Um, you know, in the fee for service world, uh, it, it's pretty tightly constrained um, under the kickback statute um, and the. CMP beneficiary anti-inducement law, um, what type of remuneration someone can provide to a patient gets to be um, a little bit more flexible in the value-based world, um, especially when patients are being aligned to the provider or the organization. And so they're not, you know, they haven't even really been, um, they're not really fully selecting their provider. They may be uh, aligned by the payer. Um, so I think that's another big area of tension is just what can you really do in terms of patient um, engagement in the fee-for-service versus value-based world? Absolutely. No, I appreciate that, Dan. That's um, it, it's an interesting observation. And on your latter point, the patient inducement point, you know, this might be um, this might be even more apparent given some of the um, changes to the safe harbors that we've seen over the past two weeks, especially when it comes to care coordination and, that, and the new care coordination safe harbor. Tell me, um, you know, is there an example that you could provide for us at an integrated healthcare organization that you've seen where this particular issue has kind of come to light? Um, you know, something a little bit more uh, uh, concrete for our listeners to better get a sense of what, what it is we're talking about today. Right. So, I mean, I think that um, technology is a big one. Um, so if we're talking about something like um, remote patient monitoring um, for whatever condition they, uh, the patient has, whether it's, um, it's a heart condition, whether uh, they need to be monitored for lab values, whatever, or, or, you know, vital signs, whatever it is. Um, under the fee, in the fee-for-service context, it can be it can be tricky to give a patient something that has independent value um, because you know outside of this new patient engagement um, safe harbor, there's uh, you know there's a de minimis value um, exception or it's not even really an exception but an interpretation um, for for the value of um, items or services you can give to patients that's very low. Um, I think $15 per item, $75 per year. Um, so you may have providers who want to give a patient some sort of device. Um, maybe, you know, maybe they can even use it um, for some other purpose. So, you know, arguably has independent value. Harder to do that in the fee-for-service context. I think in the, in the value-based care context, it's it's clear that once you're in that, um, you know, especially if you're in this value-based enterprise framework, 
one of the purposes, as, you know, has to be um, engaging the patient to coordinate their care, to improve quality, um, reduce costs. And if you're doing that, um, the, the, the agencies become more comfortable that you don't have a prohibited intent for um, inducing the patient to choose a provider. What you're doing is trying to meet one of your value-based purposes. And so, um, especially under this new um, patient engagement safe harbor, the value limit is, is much higher. It's up to $500 um, per year for a patient. So um, that's an example where I think we're gonna see our clients, um, our clients feeling a lot more comfortable doing what they think really is in the best interest of the patient to take care of them. Um, and they don't have to be quite as worried as they were before about tripping over uh, a really low value threshold. Absolutely. Although I will say, you know, just in that um, very um, uh, concrete example that you provided, it seems to me that in an integrated healthcare organization, they have to thread that that needle carefully, especially if there are, um, you know, elements of uh, fee-for-service uh, payment yeah. and value-based payment at the same organization. So, you know, and that kind of brings us to uh, the title of your briefing today, the top compliance tips for integrated healthcare organizations. Um, it, you know, given that example, given this conflict between risks, given the changes that we've seen recently, what are your top compliance tips? for integrated healthcare organizations, Dan. Sure, and, and, and Matt, you said it really well, threading the needle between those two um, you know, types of patient populations. Um, you know, one, of, one, of the good things about, one of the good things about these new Stark and kickback rules is that if you can get in that framework, it does give um, providers the option of taking a uniform approach to all their patients um, and not have to always worry about threading the needle between patient who's sitting on the left side of the, you know, of the office and one who's sitting on the right side and figuring out who the payer is in each case. But if, if you're not in a situation where you, where you can avoid threading that, threading that needle, um, that's what I was trying to cover in the, um, in the briefing. And one of the, one of the tips I have is, pretty simple, which is get the facts and circumstances of whatever the proposal is that your, um, you know, that your organization has. So whether it's providing a patient with, um, with an iPad or whether it's, um, you know, a hospital providing a primary care practice with a care coordinator, my, my tip there is understand why we're trying to do that. Um, and and it's, it sounds simple and it is, but um, really understanding from the business and the clinical folks why they're doing something, I think, you know, will help you ferret out whether um, as the lawyer who knows all the nuances um, of the different safe harbors helps you ferret out, okay, are these, are these motivations proper? Are they gonna fit in a safe harbor? Or are they gonna meet a stark exception? Um, and, and getting the facts and circumstances, what I've what I've always found really helpful is um, the OIG the OIG list of preliminary questions when you're asking the OIG for an advisory opinion. Um, and I find it really helpful because that their questions really hit on both the the 
both sides of the um, of this tension on the value-based side and the fee-for-service side. So they they ask questions related to overutilization, but they also um, ask questions about adverse um, impacts on quality of care. So I think if you can gather all that information from you know the business and the clinical team, it really helps you start piecing together as a lawyer um, or a compliance professional whether there's going to be a pathway under um, under the fraud and abuse laws to make it work. No, that's great, Dan. I think that's really helpful. And, and you know, when we were talking before, uh, prior to this podcast, you mentioned following a set of core principles and then working with clients to kind of follow through. And it seems to me that this is what we're talking about. This core, the core principles can essentially be found um, in the OIG's own guidance documents. Uh, that are, you know, frankly, you know, a couple decades old at this point. That's right. They, they're a couple decades old. And, you know, as we've seen recently um, with the new rules, there can be a lot of changes in this fraud and abuse world, and we have a lot to digest right now. But I, my, you know, my, in my opinion, these types of principles that the OIG has in those questions, they're not, they're not going anywhere. Um, you know, they first of all, they they're going to be the same for the fee for service setting. But even if you look at in this value based context, um, you know, in these new um, safe harbors and um, even the stark exceptions, um, these same concepts are embedded in in the definitions and the elements of those, um, you know, those new protections. So it's it's good to really understand um, those risk areas when you're trying to to vet a new a new proposal. Yeah, and you know, for me, as someone who's been practicing in this area uh, for quite some time, uh, as I know you have as well, Dan, you know, overutilization, increased cost to federal health care programs, adverse, right. impact, you know, diminished patient choice and increase or diminished competition, rather, you know, all of those are just the foundational bedrock of, uh, you know, the fraud and abuse analysis. And, and I, you know, it seems to me that they don't change. I agree with you. Exactly. Um, you know, another another thing that um, I think is important is um, that and, and, you know, this is something that the OIG and CMS covered in their rulemaking, um, OIG particularly um, in an in an integrated healthcare organization, however loosely we define that you really have to pay attention to um, separate legal entities. Um, w- one thing I found, Matt, in talking to clients is that if you have a successfully integrated organization, you know, you may have one common owner, you may have several wholly owned subsidiaries and um, the decision makers think of it as just one, it's just one organization. Um, You know, it's, it's uh, this health system or it's this company, but um, you have to be a little bit careful there because the, you know, the OIG has taken the position that um, it's at least possible, you know, you can have a kickback between two separate legal entities um, that have a common owner. And they, they fortunately, in the rulemaking, they did not um, end up uh, prohibiting protection under the safe harbors for entities under common ownership, but they did consider it. Um, and the, the fraud and abuse reason they used, um, you know, why they were considering it was, um, a term, I think they used a couple of formulations, but basically they have this idea of abusive cycling of patients between care settings. 
So, you know, what, what they're worried about is, okay, we may have a common owner at the top, but if you've got um, someone at the top who can control a hospital discharge to a home health agency, for example, and they're discharging to their own home health agency in an abusive way that, you know, limits patient choice, or maybe it's not the best quality or whatever, they, that's why the OIG has some concern even in this common ownership context. So Matt, I, I've just found that it's, it's hard, it's, it's not intuitive and it's hard to, you know, explain why a company that really is integrated and thinks of itself as providing, you know, seamless care transitions, why they ought to think of themselves as two different, you know, organizations in this case. But I think it's important. Absolutely, Dan, and very well said. And I think really kind of, you know, hits home a couple of points, perhaps as to why many of us are practitioners in this area. First, I think some of us really like playing in the gray space. Uh, it's uh, it can be a, you know, a, a really, um, a really interesting area. But, you know, I think what your bulletin and uh, or your briefing rather, and what the podcast today is really emphasizing is that despite that gray space, there is a fundamental set of principles that the OIG will apply, and uh, and, and those you know that that gray uh, becomes different shades, especially now that we're dealing in an environment that's both fee for service and value based in nature. Right, right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today and for your insights on this important and evolving topic. Uh, for our listeners, Dan's briefing, Compliance Tips for Integrated Health Systems, is available on the AHLA website as an exclusive benefit of AHLA membership in the Fraud and Abuse Practice Group. Please consider joining the group to access Dan's briefing and other expert content shared only with our members. Thank you, as usual, to our Fraud and Abuse podcast sponsor, the BRG Group, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. I'm your host, Matt Wetzel, and we'll be back in the new year with another edition of the AHLA Fraud and Abuse podcast.